We are studying Acts chapter 27 and the horrible shipwreck that the Apostle Paul experienced on his way to Rome. When Dave gave this message to his church family in Midlothian, Texas, his wife's oldest brother was facing his third bypass surgery. This was a time of anxiousness and fear. Listen as Dave Wordson shares with us from his own family's time of suffering. You need a composure factor. I need a composure factor. And I want to present to you from Acts 27 what the Apostle Paul's composure factor was. Because if you study the life of the Apostle Paul, you are dealing with a man who constantly lived in not a hypothetical danger, but a very real danger. And yet he was not afraid. He would become discouraged. He could fall into despair. He could be knocked down, but he was never knocked out. And he lived a life that has incredible meaning for us even today. And I want to share with you what his composure factor was. The Apostle Paul's composure factor was this. He had a purpose in his life that was so important that God would keep him on the earth until it was accomplished. I want to say that again. The Apostle Paul had a purpose on being on this planet. There was a reason for him to live which was so important that it didn't make any difference if people plotted murder against him. It didn't make any difference whether they stoned him. It didn't make any difference whether they threw him from one city to the next. It didn't make any difference whether he was on a plank in an angry sea. He was as safe as he could possibly be. He was going to make it to shore. Because you see, Paul was so vital to God that there wasn't a possibility in all the world that Paul would go home to heaven one second before God said, your work is done, you have accomplished the purpose I have for you, come on home. Now let's turn our Bible just to set the stage for that kind of a purpose. I want you to turn back to what we studied last week, Acts 26. Acts 26, 17 through 18. The Apostle Paul is speaking before Festus in Acts chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. And Paul is recounting, he's retelling what the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, revealed to him on the Damascus Road. Now the Apostle Paul was one of these rare individuals that was able to ask the Lord God directly, what is my purpose for living? Why am I here? And in verses 17 and 18, the Lord gives Paul his purpose for living. He says, I will rescue you, Paul, from your own people. That's from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. God started out, the Lord Jesus started out by saying, Paul, I will protect you. In essence, the Lord is saying, Paul, you don't need to be afraid. You're not going to be gunned down by some loony tune in the mall. You're not going to have a terrorist blow you into the kingdom by accident in an airport of Rome. You're not going to slip on the bathtub's piece of soap and bang your head on the side of the bathtub as you climb into your warm, comfortable bath and get killed. We're not going to be at your funeral and say, we don't know exactly why this happened, but Paul is dead. The Lord Jesus said, Paul, I'm going to protect you from all of your enemies. Why? Because God had a job for Paul to do. 
I am sending you to open their eyes, the eyes of the Jews and the eyes of the Gentiles. I am calling you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. To boil that all down, the Lord Jesus said, Paul, my purpose for you is for you to be a testimony of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm going to protect you. I've got a job for you to do. You are going to stand in synagogues and tell them about Jesus. You are going to stand on street corners and talk to Gentiles about Jesus. You are going to talk to kings like Agrippa, like Roman governors like Felix and Festus. You are indestructible. And then God said this a little bit later. Turn to chapter 23. Verse 11, earlier in Paul's imprisonment in Caesarea, the Lord told him this. The following night, this is the night after Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. I'm sure it was a difficult night. It's hard to cool it in jail for an evening. The Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. I want all of you to take courage. And then the Lord said this, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify to me in Rome. As Paul began his Jerusalem imprisonment, which was going to carry into Caesarea, it would last for two years. He would go through one unjust court after another, one unfair situation after another. The Lord Jesus promised him before he started any of that, Paul, you're going to witness for me in Rome. And what Jesus is saying is, Paul, you are so important to me. That no matter what Satan might throw against you, no matter how dangerous it might get, you're safe, Paul, because you're going to be a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask all of us this morning, what's our purpose for being here? You see, Paul's composure factor was, I've got a job to do. That job is so important that I'm not going to go home one second. It's not going to be like in heaven can wait when the angels make a mistake and load you on the 747 several years before you were destined to go. We don't serve a God that, that the computer gives a wrong readout and suddenly there's an accident and you're blown into kingdom come. Now let's be honest. There's a part of us that wonders about that. What I'm speaking to you about this morning in our own family is very important to us right now because we are facing an extremely dangerous situation. As of 12 o'clock tomorrow, Mary's oldest brother goes into an extremely difficult heart surgery. The medical percentages of him coming out of the surgery alive are 50-50. Those aren't good odds. This is for real, brothers and sisters. We all face that reality. And what Paul is communicating to us is that there was a purpose for him living. And that purpose was to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And I want all of us to ask ourselves the question, what's the purpose for our living? You see, what a lot of us try to do is to deny our fears. And we try to cover them up. I think that a lot of us as Americans, we cover up our fears with materialism. That's why I mentioned buying things. 
we cover up that underlying storm in our life by trying to be more comfortable. And what I'm trying to do is to just yank that comfort blanket right away from you because you know what I know that's really not a comforting factor. It really can't do what we want it to do. We can't run away. And what I want to challenge you to do as believers is to commit yourself to a life purpose to be a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you say, well, Dave, if I do that, can I just sit back with my Dr. Pepper and my lazy boy and watch it all happen? Because I know it all is going to turn out nicely in the end. I mean, if God promises me that I'll end up safe, that God will not let me go home a second before it's time to go, can I just relax and watch it all happen? I mean, if God sovereignly has it all planned out, doesn't that mean easy street from here on out? Well, let's see what it meant for Paul. Because in Acts 27, Paul goes through one of the most harrowing experiences of his life. Turn to chapter 27 of the book of Acts. It says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some of the other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius. And this isn't Julius, you know, an orange Julius. This is a centurion Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for the ports from the coast of the province of Asia. This is the People Express. That's what it is that stops at every podunk place. You get the idea. They got on this ship, and it's one of those ships that's going to go north from Caesarea, stop at Sidon, 70 miles up the Mediterranean coast of Palestine, and then it's going to go up the northern route. It's going to stop at every town along the way. It's one of those real express jobs. It's like flying from Dallas to Cincinnati to Pittsburgh to Syracuse to Albany. It's one of those trips, okay? Now, what the Roman soldier is hoping is that when they get to one of these Asian posts along the coast of southern Turkey, they'll be able to change ships and get another ship that's going to Rome. It says the next day in verse 3, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go with his friends so they might provide for his needs. I'm not going to talk about this this morning, but I want you to notice it's a common idea in the book of Acts. Wherever Paul goes, there's believers that take care of him. We need to continue to be that kind of a group of believers. We live in an age where churches, many times, and where the traveling proclaimers of the gospel, where those that are traveling Bible teachers, a lot of them are isolating themselves from God's people. I am often asked when I travel somewhere, do you want to stay in a motel? No, I don't want to stay in a hotel. I want to stay with God's people. Why? Because that's the whole purpose of the trip. The whole purpose of the trip is to get close with more of God's people. And we live in a day, as Americans, we're moving away from that, friends. We really are. We're moving away from the idea that the Apostle Paul lands in Sidon. Paul hadn't spent a lot of time in Sidon before. But instantaneously, even though he was a prisoner, there was a host of believers who cared for his needs. There were women that prepared food for Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, his traveling companion. And God remembered that food that was prepared. 
There were those that brought medical attention to the prisoner that had just been in jail for two years. There was the heart of believers, and though it's just a little statement in the Word of God, the church of Sidon forever, forever in the inspired Word of God goes on record as caring for the great Apostle Paul. Now, they sailed on from Sidon, and they went, it says in verse 4, for there we put out to sea again and passed the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. They passed the north of Cyprus trying to be protected from the wind. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myron Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. Now the Roman centurion gets what he wants. Now he's on a great big grain ship that's going to go from Myra, which is a large seaport on the Asian coast, and they're going to be able to sail to Rome. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. How many of you have ever gone sailing? How many of you have found out that it's awfully slow to sail with the wind right in your teeth? Stuart here is laughing because they went on a big sail. They went right through the Bermuda Triangle and we almost lost them down there. But they know what it's like to sail with the wind in your teeth. We all do. I took Mary for a ride one time in a sailboat. It it, I think it took us four hours to get back. And it was cold. It was horrible to sail into the wind. These men had sailed into the wind for day after day after day. They had left from Caesarea with plenty of time to make it to Rome. But now as they arrive on the southern side of the island of Crete, and if you think of Crete, Crete is an island that goes like this, and then there's a bump, and then the land juts to the north very dramatically, and in that jut there's 7,000 foot Ida. And where this little ship is at this particular time, pretty big ship, it has over 200 people on board, they're right on that little nook, right on the eastern side of that big bay. They're in a little inlet called Fair Havens. Now at that particular point, the scene is this. In the ancient world, it was not like getting on a great big ocean liner and sailing anywhere you want to, and you try to avoid the hurricanes, but if you don't quite avoid them, you'll still be relatively safe. And I quote, relatively. In the ancient world, you didn't sail on the Mediterranean in this part from November to March. They took time off from sailing from November to March because it was suicide to sail from November to March because of the northerly winter winds. Second of all, you are taking a big Las Vegas gamble if you sailed in this part of the Mediterranean from October to November. Now the writer tells us here that the fast is past. Look at verse 9. Much time had been lost and sailing had become dangerous because now it was after the fast. The fast was the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, which in A.D. 59 came on October 4th. So we're a little bit past October 4th. We're right in the gamble time, right in the gamble time of sailing in the Mediterranean. So Paul, the man of God, stands up and warns them at this time. 
He says in verse 10, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor, that's the harbor of Fair Havens, was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. Now what's going on here? Paul is giving advice for safe sailing. Now I want all of you to think about it. I want you to try to enter into this situation. You're the Roman centurion Julius. You got it? You're the one that bears the ultimate responsibility for what the ship is going to do. The Apostle Paul says, let's winter here. I can foresee that if we sail on, if we try to make it the 50 miles into Phoenix, there could be great loss of life, great loss of ship, and great loss of our cargo. The owner of the ship and the pilot of the ship said, Julius, it's only 50 miles farther. This harbor stinks. I mean, the town that's up here is just a hole in the wall. There's no good hotels. There's no good eating places. It's a lousy place to spend the winter. You want to cool your heels here for a winter? They probably said, Julius, we've got to get to Rome as quick as we can. You're a big, strong centurion. Are you a little afraid to just sail another 50 miles to the west? Now, from a human standpoint, their counsel looked great. I want all of you in this room to ask yourself, who do you listen to? Who do I listen to? How many of you know what a guidance counselor is? Okay, and the guidance counselor tries to give you advice about what you should do. I want all of you to think for a minute. Every one of you has guidance counselors in this room. In fact, as I apply it, as we sail through life, the idea of sailing is often an imagery of moving through this life or living this life. Everyone from the smallest child to the oldest adult, every one of you has a guidance counselor. In fact, you have guidance counselors. Now what Acts is showing us is that the Apostle Paul was a great man of God who had advice to give. Now I think that in this particular instance, the Apostle Paul was really not speaking under the inspiration of Scripture. Because what he says is, I foresee, I see the possibility we could have a great loss of life. And we're going to find out later that there isn't any loss of life. I don't think that Luke intends for us to feel that Paul is speaking as an inspired prophet. Later in the chapter, he will speak as an inspired prophet because an angel will appear to him. Now he's playing the role of a godly, mature man of God. And by the way, lest you think Paul didn't have any experience, Paul had already been shipwrecked three times. He had already been in the drink three times. He had sailed all over the Mediterranean world. He was very skillful in sailing on the Mediterranean. He was a man of God with experience that said, Julius, don't go. Do you have some men and women of God in your own life? that have had experience in living, that show maturity in Christ, that whenever you come to a major decision, whenever you're waiting in fair havens, 
You go to them to decide whether or not you should sail another 50 miles. You know one of the greatest hurts to me as a pastor? I think the thing that tears my guts out more than anything else is not the sudden event like John's case. John's case really hurts. But there's no decisions that were made that put John in this case. It's a genetic thing. He has a bad cardiovascular system. There's no human foolishness that was involved in it. He kept to his diet perfectly. His cholesterol count was down. There's nothing we can do. We've got to face the danger. But we don't have to sit here and say, well, if only we would have done so-and-so. The thing that just tears my guts out is when a brother and sister in Christ doesn't even listen to godly advice. They don't even go for it. They just make a decision. And they sail on, and then they crash, and they get in terrible storms. I want to challenge you. You know what? All of you sitting here this morning, as I talk to you like that, in your heart, because you're here, and the fact that you're here means that most of you are relatively in fellowship with the Lord. Because what I find when people really get out of fellowship with the Lord, they stop gathering with God's people. But I want all of you to take this real straight. If you start to wander away from the Lord, you know who you're going to run to for counsel? You're going to run to a friend. I'm amazed at how people run to their friends when they're in trouble. And I want to tell you what most of your friends will tell you. Most of your friends, unless they're strong, godly, gutsy people, you know what your friends will tell you? Exactly what you want to hear. And you know what you want to hear? Exactly what you want to hear. And you're going to get bad advice every time if you only listen to people that tell you what you want to hear. And while you're sane, while you still have your thinking cap on, before Satan drugs you, now's the time to face very strongly, I'm going to go to godly, wise, mature, Christ-like counselors. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And the multitude of counselors needs to be men and women of God who will love you enough to say, I think it's a terrible decision. And you'll save yourself so much hassle in life if you'll listen to the advice of godly men and women before you sail on, before you leave Fair Haven's headstrong, please listen. I beg you to listen. Because there's going to be enough storms in life when you make wise decisions. It's the storms we get into that we didn't have to get into that trouble me so badly. Well, Julius didn't listen. He was like a lot of us. Anybody identify with him? He said in his mind, man, this is just a prisoner. It's just the Apostle Paul. What does he know about sailing? The pilot of the ship, the owner of the ship says, let's just sail another 50 miles. Man alive, I've sailed 50 miles in one day. So the wind started to blow nicely from the south. Satan always sets you up like that. The wind starts to blow nicely from the south. It's just the wind they need. And they leave Fair Havens. They go around the bend. 
And just like that, a creek jutted to the north, powerful winds off those high mountains. A lot of you haven't been raised in the mountains, but I tell you, if you live a little bit off the mountains, and when a storm comes over the top of them, when it starts to get that downdraft, I mean, you feel like you just got caught in a terrible flood, you know. And if you're in a sailboat, you're in bad trouble. They got caught in a hurricane, the text tells us. And that wind just tore them. I mean, it was just like being grabbed by an angry monster. They got on the lee of a small island. It was just calm for just a few minutes. They quick pulled their lifeboat on shore. It was already waterlogged. They lowered their mask a little bit. They did everything they could, and then the storm caught them again. I mean, they were just living nip and tuck for 14 days and nights. They weren't eating anything. They couldn't do anything but just give themselves to the mercy of the storm. You can imagine that, facing that 14 days and nights, being driven in a hurricane. I mean, the waves. I remember one time with my dad, we were sailing down to Nassau, going to high school down in Florida. And one night, my dad got out me with the Oceanic, and we went out on the, on the ship, and the Oceanic had this long railing that jutted out into the sea. And I remembered that we got out there, and the wind was so strong that if you held onto the edge of the ship on this little gunwale-like, it would just, if you let go at all, it would just drive you about eight feet to the other side of this little indentation on the side of the ship. And I remember saying to my dad, I said, Dad, is this the way it always is out here in the ocean? And my dad said, oh, yeah, this is just a real normal wind. And as, as we crawled together along the deck, the ship's going like this. As we crawl to get back inside the ship, I remember thinking as a little kid of about, I wasn't so little, I was about 14, I said, boy, man, how do these people ever stand it, go on these ocean cruises, and it's always like this. I mean, I spent the whole night putting myself back into the top bunk. I mean, I got thrown out of that bed about 10 times. So we get up to go and eat. I mean, you can hardly crawl to the dining hall. We walk in, nobody else is in the dining hall. My dad nonchalantly orders his breakfast, which is burned toast and gooey eggs, and nobody else is eating. Suddenly, over the loudspeaker, it announces that we're sorry for all the discomfort last night. We just sailed in between two hurricanes, and the crazy winds that were out there on the deck were about 80 miles an hour. It wasn't a typical day on the ocean at all. It was one of these big hurricanes, and this was a great big ship. And the hurricane winds were just tossing around like with some little, little skiff along the way. Paul faced that for 14 days and night, and it wasn't a big ocean liner. It was this ancient ocean sailboat. Nobody's eating. So suddenly Paul stood up and he did what everybody loves somebody to do. He says, I told you so. Look at it. Verse 21. After men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Now, don't you love people like that? Some of the commentators have said that Paul's old nature got involved here a little bit. Maybe that's so. I don't know. I think the reason he reminded them of that is because they didn't take his advice the last time. And he needed to remind them, you know, hey, my advice carries some weight. I know what I'm talking about. He says, then you could have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Our lesson this morning is about how to have courage in a storm. That's what we're talking about. What's the composure factor? 
And Paul says it's because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am, whom I serve. Paul is saying this, I belong to Christ. I am Christ's child. Number two, I am serving him. I want all of you to consider that. Can you say that about your own life? I belong to God. I am his child. Now, if you're a born-again believer, you can say that with great confidence. If you have invited Christ into your life, you can all say, I am God's. I am his. I am his child. But the second question is very important. Are you serving him? Because I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to promise you a blessed thing if you're not serving him. I believe with all my heart in God's sovereignty, but God's sovereignty is so mighty that it looks a lot of times like there's some horrible mistakes on the earth. I'm not going to promise you any safety at all. You might get clobbered when you shouldn't have if you're out of the will of God, if you're disobeying his commands in the word of God. If you stop serving God, if we can't say this morning, I am serving God, you're sailing into troubled waters, and I'm not going to comfort you one single bit because I don't think Scripture does. Now, you're going to get into storms because other people make mistakes, and, you, and just the way life is, we live in a chaotic world that's like a tumultuous ocean. What the Lord Jesus had told them back in Acts 23. He said, Paul, you're going to witness before Caesar. So Paul says, don't sweat it, fellas. We're all going to make it. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. The Lord didn't even tell him what island it was. So automatically the sea was calm and everything was right because God told Paul, we're going to make it. Nobody's going to lose their life. You're going to witness for me in Rome. I've got a purpose for you. So now you just sit back and you're a lazy boy and everything will be calm and tranquil and no problems, right? And Paul didn't have to do anything. You see, if God has it all planned out, how many of you have ever said, God's got it all planned out. What difference does it make what I do? Brothers and sisters, that's not biblical theology. And if ever there was a chapter that got this across, listen to this chapter. Yes, God is going to have Paul witness to Caesar. There's not a chance in the world that Paul's not going to make it. After the angel promised that not one of the men would drown, in fact, God even says not a hair of your head is going to be destroyed later on in the chapter. But that didn't mean that anyone could go to sleep. You couldn't go down the hull of the ship and say, oh, God's going to take care of it. Everything will work out. No sweat. They still were in a terrible sea. There was still that horrible storm. Things got worse after God made him the promise instead of better. They were losing more control of the ship. In fact, it got so bad they were throwing everything out, anything that would move in the ship, except the people, they threw it overboard. Paul had to counsel them again. You need to eat. You need your strength. We're going to have to run this thing aground because finally the sailors realized the water's getting shallower. I could hear the sound of the breakers. They took soundings and it went from 100 fathoms to 90 fathoms. They could tell they were getting closer to shore. And so they put out their stern anchors so the boat wouldn't whip around and they lose total control over it. And in the darkness, they sat and waited and Paul told them to eat. Even while they were doing that, some of the sailors grabbed the lifeboat and said, hey, we need to put some anchors off the front of the boat. 
Now, if you know anything about sailing in a storm, you know that any, any sailor in his right mind is not going to put anchors off the front of the boat and off the back of the boat. And Paul realized right away it was escape time. The sailor says, we're leaving, fellas. It's like the pilot. You know, that says, I'm going to go for help. And he jumps out the airplane. And Paul says, notice, human responsibility. He says, Julius, if you let the sailors go, we will not be able to be saved. That's human responsibility. I want you to see the tremendous balance. God says, nobody's going to lose their life. But in the rough and tumble of living in the storm, Paul says, Julius, you let those men go, and we're not going to make it. And the Roman soldiers took their swords out and cut the ropes. The lifeboat went into the sea. And that's the way we need to live. The Lord has not called us to passively sleep in the storm. You're called to intense activity, intense involvement, intense responsibility. You need to cut the lines if necessary. Paul's involved in this thing. The next morning they make a run for sure. As the sun comes up, it looks good. There's a beach. They've got the ship relatively under control. They still have the sailors on deck. They hoist the sail up a little bit, and they start to run that ship for the beach. And at this point, you would figure, God says we're going to make it. Everything will be all right. We're going to run right through the open sea, slide right up into the beach. It's going to be Waikiki from then on out. They start running for the beach, and they come into an area, a narrow inlet, where two of the seas meet, where there's a, a vicious current. And the current where the two seas had met put up a great big underwater sandbar. And it's kind of a muddy sandbar. And the ship's bow strikes fast, and it's not going to come loose. If you know anything about that, I've been in some of those situations with a smaller sailboat, and it's bad news. I mean, your front end stuck, and the big breakers are rolling over the top of you. It starts to beat your ship to death, and it's beating you to death. Once again, the soldiers say, let's kill all the prisoners so that none of them will escape, because if they escape, we'll lose our lives. Again, human responsibility. The Roman centurion says, no, don't kill him, because he wants to save Paul's life. And everybody grabs for a plank, or they start swimming. And the chapter ends with God's gracious salvation to everybody on the ship. Everybody makes it to sure. The chapter closes with these words. The rest were together there on planks or on pieces of ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. What's the application for us? If your purpose in life, and if my purpose in life, is to testify to others about Christ, and that testimony is not just with our words, it's by a total commitment of life. It's by words and life. It means that we get up in the morning and we say, Lord Jesus, my reason for existence today is not to buy more things at the mall. It's not to try to get a retirement all set up. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But if it's your ultimate purpose, you've chosen something that will never comfort you. If your ultimate purpose in life is to have a nice family, whatever it might be, to be able to escape, you can't do it. You can't escape danger. The only way to be able to handle danger is to join with Paul in the proclamation of the gospel. And then I want to say this. If you join with Paul in the proclamation of the gospel, you'll live a life 
that takes you into a lot of danger at times. The Lord will ask you to do things that can be very dangerous. Not stupid things, but He'll ask you to do things that are dangerous. And I believe the Lord might want to use some of you men and women to invest, to invest in taking the Gospel into all the world. And if we raise kids that are afraid because we're afraid, then we're going to miss something. You say, well, Dave, are we going to be all right? I'm not going to promise you. If you serve God and say, my goal in life, I'm going to live my life to join in this task of proclaiming the gospel to the world. And I'm even going to be willing to take risks. A lot of you can't remember this, but when I moved out to Midlothian, you know what the people at Faith Bible Church told me? I had a dear friend, an older friend, come up to me, put his arm around my shoulder. He said, Dave, if you ever don't have food in the refrigerator, be sure to give us a call. He said, those people down there, you know, you're going to have a really rough time. And I remember that was a great thing to be told. Mary was expecting. We were expecting our first child. And one of my dear friends is saying, you know, I think you're a little bit crazy for going down to Midlothian. Man, you'll starve to death down there. Why don't you just visit him casually? I'm glad I made the choice. And once again, the Lord didn't even ask me to get into the sea. What kind of choices are you going to make? Are you making the safe choices? Are you living just to preserve your family? Just to try to have a nice, comfortable life? Brothers and sisters, at any time, the element of danger can come into your life. You can't escape it. But if your purpose is to proclaim the gospel, it's not a 50-50 chance. I want to close with this. You know, it doesn't make any difference when the surgeon starts to work on Mary's brother. There's no 50-50 chance. I want to tell you that. John's life is not up to the laws of probabilities. It's not a Las Vegas gamble. It's not fate, my friend. It's not to roll the dice on the table. The Lord might say, John, it's time to go home. You have done your part in the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. Now, what I want all of you to realize, that will not be an accident. It will not be fate. It will be a loving daddy that says, Van Camp and family, I know you don't understand. And it's going to be very difficult, but please trust me. On this particular storm, I chose not to land him on another shore of earth, but to land him on heaven's shore. Now that's tough for me to say. And my human prayer, and my human prayer this morning is very intense. Please Give him more time. His kids need him. His wife needs him. The town needs him. But his life is not a percentage. Because John's purpose is to join with Paul in heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ. No 50-50. No slip of the knife. Just a loving plan of an eternal father. Can I say that about your life this morning? What's your comfort factor? The only comfort factor that can take us safely home is for I am not ashamed 
of the gospel of Christ. Because it's the power of God into salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Is your purpose in life to testify to Jesus? If it is, you might be hanging on a plank in the midst of a hurricane, but you're okay. Because not a hair of your head will fall until a loving father says, a job well done, it's time to get rewarded.